0: Hi, this is Dustin Hobbs of the California NBA. Welcome to Connect, our monthly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers and headliners in the industry. This month, I'm excited to have Mitch Kider here with us. Mitch is a managing partner with Weiner Brodsky & uh based in Washington, D.C., Mitch is out here in California. We're actually in Newport Beach this week uh, for the annual Western, or the annual California NBA, uh, Western States Focused Legal Issues and uh, Regulatory Compliance Conference. And uh, Mitch just actually finished up a panel a little while ago on the CFPB. So I know he's uh, been studying up on them and, uh, and uh, definitely up on what's going on in the industry. Mitch is one of the most respected attorneys in the industry. So I'm really excited to hear his thoughts today. Uh, before we get started, I want to say a little bit about the California MBA. If you're not familiar with the California MBA, maybe this is the first time you've heard our uh, podcast or, or been uh, introduced to us. The California MBA has been around since 1955. Uh, we represent uh, the California's mortgage banking industry, the real estate finance industry here in California. And uh, we represent both residential and commercial mortgage bankers. And we do that before the state legislature, the governor, and all the regulatory agencies in the state. And uh, the one thing I'll mention that uh, is of particular importance, especially in this atmosphere uh, at the conference today, is uh, that when legislation, when regulatory uh, decisions are made in California, they have a way, and I'm sure Mitch can attest to this, they have a way of making their way across the country and sort of filtering out in the other states and maybe even in in the the federal agencies. And so what happens in California is crucial to the country and to our uh, industry. So All right, Mitch, uh, with that out of the way here, I wanted to uh, jump in. And before we get into sort of the nitty gritty on the industry, I always like to ask this question. It's always of uh, interest to me, especially. Um, what's your background? How would you get uh, to where you are at uh, at uh, Weiner Brodsky and, and uh, you know,
1: what's your journey? So it's an interesting story, actually. Housing finance is something that I've actually been interested in ever since I've been a little kid, to tell you huh. the truth. I am the son of immigrants, people that survived World War II, survived the Holocaust came to this country, purchased a house with an FHA loan. And uh, ever since I can remember, they told me about lending. They told me about how they borrowed a loan to purchase a house. And you, when you're an immigrant, and especially one that uh, was in the Holocaust, my mother was in a concentration camp, my father fought in the woods with, alongside Russian partisans, they basically didn't have roofs over their heads. The house was very important to them. And that was ingrained in me and housing was really important to me and I was always intrigued and interested about how banks handled the finance process itself. I could take you years later, I went to school in Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin in Madison. I was there for about a week. I called up the mayor of the city and I said, I'd like to come work for you. (laughs) He said, what kind of things interest you? I said, housing. And I went to work for the mayor as a volunteer. And I worked on housing related issues, started the first tenant landlord rental relation board in the country, yeah. in Madison. And from Madison, I went to a school called Washington University in St. Louis School of Law, one of the best law schools in the country. And I actually went there because there was this specific professor. His name was Daniel Mandelker. He's still alive. He's about 95 years old now. And uh, Dr. Mandelker was one of the icons when it came to housing and urban law, I wrote the textbooks. So I spent two years as his research assistant, uh, helping him write textbooks, helping him write articles, learning all about housing finance, Ginny Mae, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, and everything that else that was going on in the industry. And these are cutting edge times, because this was uh, you know, in the very early 1980s. And when it came time to, uh, I realize this is uh, probably a longer story than you were no, looking no, for, no, but I'll tell you. When it came time to uh, graduate law school, I thought about what I'd like to do, and I've always been a good litigator in, in law school, at least. I won mock trial competitions, moved court competitions, and I wanted to mesh the two together. And so uh, the professor I worked with told me he knew the general counsel of HUD very well. And I went to work at HUD as an honors intern, uh, basically regulating mortgage bankers and litigating with mortgage bankers and working with the Justice Department all along the way in various U.S. attorney's offices. I tried a case against a law firm. I won. They hired me, and that's how I got into private practice.
0: Can't beat him, join him huh? 19, In
1: 1992, I started this firm with two other people, Harvey Wiener, Jim Brodsky and myself. We started it, we've grown it, and uh, this is what we do. We represent mortgage bankers all over the country. We do their major litigation for them. We do their M&A work for them. A lot of bank M&A work. We do the mortgage side of that bank M&A work itself. We do their regulatory work, really, in all 50 states and the federal government as well. So we decided when we started this firm, it was going to be full service to this industry group.
0: Hmm. Well, that is, fa- I mean, I have to say it's fascinating in the sense that uh, I've done. I think this is our 10th episode now, and uh, I, I've yet to find someone who started out in the industry or had the, you know, the uh, their path focused on our industry so far back. So many people, it's, you know, they kind of fell into the industry or they were doing something else and then, you know, fell into mortgage banking and found and loved it and uh, stayed in it. but. You know, sure. I, I love the fact that it's, you know, it's been your passion for that long. It's that's really that's, that's well, you know, know,
1: provided the American dream for me. I mean, basically, you know, two parents came here with nothing in their pockets. They had a house. They sent both my sister and I both to college to law school. They managed to afford it. I have a family. I have three sons. They're all professionals, two lawyers and one who's vice president of a private equity firm. It all starts somewhere, quite frankly. And in, in all honesty, a lot of that started with the equity that my parents built in that house that they were able to use.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. I've got four kids myself. That is the American dream, absolutely. All right, so uh, jumping into uh, um, your specialty here uh, litigation, what, what would you say what's the hot uh, hot topic in litigation these days or maybe going into 2020?
1: Well, there are a number of hot topics in litigation these days. So the uh, Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the ECPA is a very hot topic these days. Uh, and the question of what is an auto-dialer and what is not an auto-dialer and that that ultimately may be decided by the supreme court because there's a split in circuits but there's a fair amount of litigation and a lot of exposure for mortgage lenders that are using uh auto-dialers and uh and making calls along those lines so you see a number a number of those cases that are coming up the fair credit reported act the reporting act you know not in terms of traditional uh, credit reports But in terms of investigative credit reports and credit reports that are being had for trigger leads and things of that sort is causing a fair amount of litigation today as well. And I think that's going to continue on. Uh, We're starting to see the beginning of uh, a number of suits that deal with data breach and cybersecurity breaches. And you know that's just going to continue over time. And when you look at what's happening with uh, California and the CCL uh, Act itself. Uh, there are statutory damages in here. So soon, you won't even have to show actual damages to be in court. So these are all areas that uh, that lenders should be thinking more about and looking more about in terms of uh, in terms of third party litigation.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure the, uh, especially the CCPA stuff out here in California, that'll come up. We're having our, at the conference tomorrow, we're going to be uh, focusing on CCPA. We have a couple hour workshop that I'm sure will focus on some of these issues. Um, so what about uh, class action? Is there any uh, any major class action litigation that we should keep our eye on?
1: Well, there's a lot going on with class action litigation. You know, over the years, I've actually defended uh, more than 150 class action lawsuits. Uh, and and so here's the way to look at class action lawsuits in terms of what, what to look out for. Plaintiff's attorneys, they're professionals, and I view them as entrepreneurial uh, litigators. Who do, what do they sue over? They sue over anything that's been successful. So they watch each other. That's the way it all started with escrow class action lawsuits. A couple of suits were filed back in the 1980s and that was really the first time anyone was going after mortgage lenders. A couple of courts uh, looked upon those and and, and thought there might be something there. So then everyone jumped on that particular bandwagon. So you get these class actions two ways. You get them because attorneys jump on things that work or you get them through the news. And so if you read a settlement about a respite case, If you read a settlement that deals with any type of a regulatory issue like loan originator compensation you are likely to have that followed with some type of a class action lawsuit they they see what's in the news so they see what otherwise works but in terms of what the real big issues are now they kind of permeate all class action lawsuits and they really deal with statute of limitations that's what it deals with okay there's an effort that's being made and that courts uh, or a number of courts are actually buying off on to extend the statute of limitations. There's a theory called fraudulent concealment, okay, and that results in equitable tolling. So for example, a consumer has a one-year statute of limitation under the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act under RESPA, but courts are holding that the consumer might not have known of the violation and you may have fraudulently concealed that particular violation okay even though the consumer really has to show that they made investigation but courts are moving away from that as well there's a court, there's a case that just came down in the fourth circuit that said that even when a plaintiff knew of another lawsuit okay they would not attribute knowledge to them and they allowed equitable tolling in the case itself so there's this expansion of the statute of limitations and that's going to make a very big difference in class action lawsuits. In RESPA, there's actually a split in circuits that's happening now as well. So the, the seminal case on this is a case named Snow and it came out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in Snow, it dealt with the issue of when is there a RESPA violation? When does that, when does that violation occur so that you can toll the statute of limitations? And the Snow Court held it has to be when the loan closes so the loan closes and the statute of limitations goes from there okay that's when you start to toll that statute of limitations but but now there's a split here in the ninth circuit courts have held no that's not necessarily the case in an mi case in the mortgage insurance case itself the court just held that in fact every time a mortgage insurance payment is made That's a new thing of value that's being paid and that re-ups the statute of limitations and you start all over again. And that's happening now. There are three or four circuits that go along those lines. Apply that to other federal regulatory requirements and statutes itself and basically you find yourself in this endless cycle without a statute of limitation. So those types of cases are really important. They need to be watched out for. And you'll see them eventually make their way up to the Supreme Court. I was going to say, yeah.
0: I mean, if there's a split in the circuits like that, it sounds like we are headed to a Supreme Court decision at some point. Yeah. Or, or multiple ones. Yeah, um, So speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, I, you know, I think everyone in the industry has kind of had this, you know, in the back of their minds, focusing on it. Uh, you know, occasionally when it pops up in the news over the last couple of years. But uh, I just read, you know, a couple of weeks ago that the, you know, the Supreme Court may take up the uh, CFPB's constitutionality. And uh, so I'm just curious, what do you see? What is the future like? What's, that, what are your, what's your take on uh, where that case is headed?
1: Yeah, so it's fascinating, actually. And you know, we started it all when I started uh, with the PHH case, with which I litigated. That was the first time. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I litigated that case. I tried it, took it all the way through the appeal. And uh, that is the first time we challenged the uh, constitutionality <laughs> uh, of the CFPB. So it's really interesting for me to see what's going on Today, so the Supreme Court said they will hear the Sailor case. Sailor case comes out of the Ninth Circuit as well, and you know I, I think what's ultimately going to happen is the Supreme Court has to look at whether or not the structure of the CFPB is constitutional. And so the question is: first of all, the CFPB is believed to be an independent agency for years. For for. Since, since the beginning of independent agencies, probably back in the 1930s, people have questioned, where does that come from? You go to school and you learn about three yeah, branches absolutely. of government, right? Well, where did this fourth branch of government come from? That's the question. So there have been many people that really wanted to challenge that ever since a case in 1935 that was known as Humphrey's Executor. Uh, and in Humphrey's Executor, it involves someone at the FTC. And back then the Supreme Court said, no, it's an independent agency but it's okay because it has a commission and it's self-checking and you have Democrats and Republicans. And so it's not a political agency. It's really an agency that's there for its expertise. Well, now we have these independent agencies with just a single director, single director that the president cannot get rid of. And these agencies like the CFPB, they are providing executive level uh, business. That's what they are and they belong in the executive level. So the question here is beyond the, the issue of, you know, where does this fourth branch of government come from? This is this really a separation of power? Isn't it the president that should have the power over this? This is an executive level agency, you know, in, in, in practice, theory. in yeah. theory and in practice. Yeah. And yet if the presidents cannot terminate someone at will, that person can go forward with policies that are adverse to the president's policies themselves. What do I think is ultimately going to happen with that? I think the Supreme Court's going to recognize that. I mean, there's already one judge there that has, because Judge Kavanaugh ruled on that in the PHH case, and he wrote the decision for it. So the court has a choice. The court can either strike out, if they find it, the structure unconstitutional, which the CFPB themselves now says is unconstitutional. The court can strike out the four because provision, so a president can, in fact, terminate the director of the CFPV with or without cause, or the Supreme Court could strike the entire statute, they could strike title, title 10, send it back to the House and Senate and say, do it all over again. Regardless of where their ideology is, courts do not like the idea of being disruptive to the point of saying everything an agency did is wrong. Yeah. The more likely result is they're going to write out the, uh, the for cause provision itself. And that's gonna make some dramatic changes. You will see a difference at the CFPB. If you have a new president at the next election, you can be sure that president's gonna want their own person to run the CFPB. It's actually going to make the CFPB even more political. Because if you look at cabinet level agencies, those are all executive agencies, and they all serve at the pleasure of the president, and they're all selected by the president with advice and consent of the Senate and that's what will happen with the CFPB itself. And every president will have the ability to pick their own. We'll see. I think that that's probably what's gonna happen, although beyond the Supreme Court determination, it makes sense to keep an agency like the CFPB or to create an agency like the CFPB because they've always been political, to create an agency like the CFPB as a more independent agency. And what I'd really like to see, ultimately when this is all done, is Congress saying, no, that's not the way we want to do it. And creating a commission like the SEC, like the FTC. But that's further down the road.
0: Yeah, it seems, uh, you know, the idea, it shouldn't seem like it's impossible. But the idea of Congress getting together and, you know, making changes to the CFPB like that, that seems like a Herculean task at this point. Yeah, it does. It does at this moment in time. but Two, three, four
1: years down the road. Who knows?
0: Let's hope. Yeah. So speaking of the uh, CFPB, you know, Taking the uh, uh, the case aside, what do you think will be their uh, uh, their compliance and enforcement agenda going into 2020?
1: So their enforcement agendas is, is interesting. The the philosophy of of Kathy Craninger, and I think it was the philosophy of Mick Mulvaney, but he wasn't there very long, is really we're going to find violations. And if they are real violations and it's clear under the law, we're going to go after those violations. I think the first thing to note is they put an end to regulation by enforcement, which really was the matter in which Richard Cordray did business at the CFPB. So that's good. And the overarching philosophy is we're going to look at the statute. We're going to look at the regulations. And if you violate it, then you're going to pay a price for it. OK, and then they're going to look at the egregiousness along those particular lines. So that, I think, is their top priority. If you want substantive areas that you've got to look at, I think it's fair to say that 2020 is going to be the year of the veteran. Mm -hmm. It's a political year. It's an election year. And you already see a number of different agencies, including the CFPB, investigate different matters as they pertain to, to veterans. There are a number of different civil investigative demands that deal with direct mail solicitations that deal with Earl loans and streamline refis and whether or not there's a tangible benefit. Uh, You see it at the CFPB level, you see it at the Justice Department level as to compliance with the VA Guarantee Program. You see states that have already entered into uh, consent orders and settlements with some VA lenders on the basis of their advertising itself. So that's gonna be a high priority and that program is gonna be scrutinized uh, tremendously. That leads you into uh, you know other issues uh, like fair lending, which is always a high priority in every administration. It has been since the first uh, George HW. Bush administration when we had our first major fair lending uh, uh, consent orders that were issued. That's not going to change in this administration either. That's a big issue, that's a civil rights issue. So you're going to see that there. And finally, I tell you, A priority that isn't going to go away, and that's very dangerous for lenders, is UDAC. Mm -hmm. You know, unfair, uh, deceptive, and abusive acts and practices on a federal level, but not just on a federal level, on a state level as well. Unfair unfair trade practice acts. And I think one of the biggest issues facing lenders are are state unfair. and deceptive practice acts themselves because those acts, and they talked a little bit about that in my session just before, those acts aren't necessarily statutory violations. There aren't statutory laws. There aren't regulatory laws that say do this and you're violating the law. Do that and you're violating the law. They're much more amorphous than that. And so that's hard to get your arm around. Which really means that lenders have to really ask themselves when they have their policies and procedures, when they look at what those policies are and how they lend, they have to look at it closely to see whether or not they think anyone's going to get hurt by it, whether or not they think someone is being fooled by that practice or doesn't fully understand it itself, to make sure they don't get caught up in those types of actions as well. Uh, These unfair. and deceptive practice acts—they extend statute of limitations, and they come with statutory damages. They come with additional penalties as well, and I think that's probably one of the biggest issues that's going to
0: face that the industry's going to face going forward. Do you see a particular state that uh, is taking the lead in that? Well,
1: I mean, uh, you know, the reality is we're sitting in the state right now that that has the uh, civil code provisions to back it up. And that aggressively uh, pursues those types of actions. California probably
0: is on, on the very top of that list. I guess you should have said, aside from California, yeah, California being the obvious, yeah. the obvious one. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so uh, speaking, sticking with uh, uh, sort of what's going on uh, at the uh, um, at the federal level, what do you think? What's the uh, the fallout after the uh, QM patch expires next year? Well, I
1: mean, we'll see you know, hopefully there won't be much of a fallout because they'll do it in a thinking fashion. I think it depends on what happens. I don't think the QM uh, patch is simply going to expire without anything else. I think one of two things will probably happen. You'll either get a shorter temporary extension as they try to work out how to deal with the issue, or you'll get the situation where they revamp QM ATR ability to repay and a lot of those uh, consumers that otherwise uh, could not fall into a straight-out QM loan, but for the patch, may be defined to fall into that QM loan. If that doesn't happen, the fallout's tremendous. If they don't look at the consumers that uh, that that are, you know, the beneficiaries of the patch, you're going to find that there's going to be much less access to credit. For lower, moderate income, and even middle income people, quite frankly, you're going to fa- find that lenders are being squeezed along those particular lines because volume is going to be down yeah, as well. Sure. So the industry will be hurt by that as well. And uh, you know, we're going to look like a uh, we're going to look like some countries do, where it's very very difficult to get to get a loan. The QM patch has been really important, not just because of the forty three percent DTI ratio but because it also allowed lenders to underwrite to the agency guidelines, to Fannie and Freddie guidelines. They have to underwrite these loans to Appendix Q. There are many worthy borrowers, credit-worthy borrowers, that simply will fall out. So we'll wait and see. I mean, you know, the, uh, the CFPB issued their, uh, their advance notice of proposed rulemaking uh, last summer. My guess is that somewhere mid-2020, you're gonna see some type of a proposed rule or hear more about what their plan is. I you know, I hope, I hope, and I, I find it hard to believe that any anyone in the government is just gonna let it fall without taking care of this situation. I think that'd be very,
0: very irresponsible, so we'll see. Do you think that there is a, a- a sort of a permanent fix to that uh, within the uh, regulatory agencies themselves or is this something that Congress is going to have to address at some point
1: no I think ultimately Congress is going to have to address this quite frankly that's where I think that's come from and you know it plays together with GSE reform and things along those particular lines and you know GSE reform is something that's been talked about now for 11 years uh, so it's going to take some time
0: yeah that's, I keep hearing the same thing yep um, so so switching gears a little bit here, what's your uh, advice? Um, and I loved your your backstory fits perfectly into this. What's your advice to any younger attorneys or uh, would be attorneys who are interested or looking at, you know, sort of where they want to um, put their focus in? And if they're looking at mortgage finance, what's your you know, your thoughts? Your uh, you know, Well, first, I'd
1: say it's a great area to be a lawyer. I mean, I've done this for a very long time. And the truth of the matter is I enjoy every day. I love being an attorney. I managed my firm. I could probably use live without some of the uh hr issues as they come up managing people from time to time but in terms of being an attorney i love it Uh, i love working with clients and i love what i do and i think a lot of attorneys will find uh, a lot of happiness in that area but my advice to attorneys who want to get into mortgage banking and to tell you the truth i give them this advice in other areas as well is you actually need to know more than just the law it's not enough to read a regulation it's not enough to read a statutory provision you need to know your client's business because if you don't know your client's business, you don't know how you're gonna help them solve those problems. And a good lawyer is really a problem solver. That's really first and foremost what a good lawyer is. And so what I really enjoy about my practice in the firm that we created is, we decided to create it around an industry. And we decided that there isn't gonna be any other law firm out there that knows and understands this industry as well as we do. And to that, we added really good attorneys. Okay, to provide prime service. So that's what I would say to young attorneys. Don't just look at it as, oh, I can walk in and litigate any case, and I hear that all the time, or I can just go do any deal along those lines. Understand their business. You're not gonna know when to say no, and you should not say no all the time, and you're not gonna know when to say yes, and you're not gonna know what the right alternative is to be able to help your clients unless you learn their
0: business, and that's what's critical. Mm-hmm. Lots of homework. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, sort of our, our closing thoughts here as we, as we end, uh, what's your your thought on uh, sort of what, uh, what lenders don't know that they should know or what's the biggest threat that uh, you see out there aside from what we talked about, if there's something else out there that uh, maybe should keep them awake at night, maybe doesn't?
1: So, you know, I actually think most lenders know what they need to know. It's taken a while to get there. If you asked me this question in 2007, you would have had a very different answer. Uh, But I think most lenders are doing a pretty good job. I guess I would put two things in the category of what lenders might learn a little more about, quite frankly. And one is this CMS, the compliance management system. Especially small, mid-sized lenders themselves, you know, they may have a decent system when they recognize a rule or regulation of implementing it or doing something else along those lines. But a CMS is much broader than that. A CMS is out there to protect you it's to number one make sure you get it right number two if you don't get it right make sure you're on top of it and you catch it right away make sure that you know you don't end up with systemic problems themselves and you know when the uh, when the CFPB first came into existence A lot of lenders found themselves behind the eight ball and they were trying to catch up on compliance related matters. They tried very hard to catch up and they did. They did. It took some time, but they did. Uh, Lenders need to know that they need to keep that up and they have to have an all-encompassing CMS system to ensure that they'll be in good shape. And some lenders think, well, different administration, maybe the rules are going to change maybe there's, you know, they're more lax on enforcement or something else along those particular lines. That doesn't work. That's just a recipe for disaster itself. The last piece that I will tell you that lenders need to know, because I actually just did a webinar on this, because I found it to be really important, is reporting requirements. Lenders are going to have problems. It's the nature of the business. You're going to find something went wrong on a loan. Someone did something wrong, could be a third party, could be someone in your company, but they were reporting obligations. FHA has reporting obligations and they have annual certifications that they just changed and they have uh, loan level certifications. Those certifications have been used by the government False Claims Act prosecutions. That's a problem, okay? States have notice requirements as well. Lenders should have and create matrices, of a matrix of all of their reporting requirements. If something happens, What's my reporting requirement? When do I have to report it to, and who do I report it to? I've actually seen tremendous sanctions placed on lenders, not for just not reporting, but for not reporting on a timely basis. And so that's something that lenders really need to start focusing on.
0: All right. Well, hey, Mitch, appreciate the time. It is my Thanks pleasure for, uh, joining much. us here on Connect. That's all the uh, That's all the time we've got today on Connect for this month's episode. Join us next time, and uh, make sure and subscribe to our. Uh, You can subscribe to us on uh, YouTube, on SoundCloud, or iTunes. That's it for this time. We'll see you next time.